G'day everyone and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today we're talking with Eastern Suburbs icon, former international test cricketer, Mike Whitney. Today we hear the single best sledge he's ever received, the impact T20 has had on the game and the inside goss from Mr Sydney Weekender as to the best place to have your staycation in New South Wales. You're listening to Coogee Voice. The encouragement of the kids to play is not only to play the sport, it's to make them a better person. And when I was about 10, Uncle Jimmy gave me a pair of batting gloves, which were the old green spiky ones in those days. But I just thought it was just amazing to have my own pair of batting gloves. The council rang me up and said, do you want it to be the Mike Whitney Ella Brothers or the Ella Brothers Mike Whitney? I just said, eh, eh. I'm happy to go after the great Ella Brothers and I'm just happy to have my last name there. Mike, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Lovely to be here, Marjorie. Uh, really, really good. And even without talking about the cricket club, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is really busy with the cricket club. We're going to get into that. <laughs> but before we do, you're born and bred Matto boy. Your family's lived in the area for more than 60 years. What do you love most about growing up in that neck of the woods? Matraville was, you know, an interesting place to grow up. I was born in 1959. My parents bought a house there in 1958 for three and a half thousand pounds. And I remember them telling me as my sister and I were getting a bit older that my father's hand shook signing that loan agreement for three and a half thousand pounds. Matraville, Maroubra, Chifley, uh, Larpa, Malabar was real working class and pretty tough suburbs to grow up in. I went to Matraville Public School. That was really interesting because there'd been an influx of people from England, like do you remember the old 10-pound pom sort of thing? And they all moved into Heffron Park, which was a, a hostel then, and then when they sort of got up on their feet, they all moved into Hillsdale, which was the first high-rise area around. So a lot of the kids I went to school with at Maddow Public and then South Sydney Boys High, which was a boys' high school when I went there, were English. There was a, like the Aussie component, then there was some Italians and some Greeks and a lot of what we call pommies who loved their cricket, of course, but played this other weird game, soccer, which we, you know, we didn't really, we were rugby league people and rugby union. So Matraville, look, there was a lot of sport and everybody played sport. So, and not as many sports as there is now, like winter was rugby league and I played for Maddow Tigers, La Perouse, one year at Kensington and then Mascot Juniors. So I played all over that South Sydney juniors era and loved it and played with some amazing footballers that went on to play first grade. Summer was generally cricket or down the beach. You know, if you weren't down at Maroubra Beach at some stage on the weekend, you, you just weren't even in the game. So it was a good place to grow up. As I said, it was pretty tough and, you know, there was a few fights after school and, and those sort of things in those old days, sorting out, you know, what side of the street you lived on and, and whatever. But I think anybody who came from Matraville and and got an opportunity, most people took it. And there was some people that I grew up that were older than me, people like Ron Coote, Paulie Sait, John O'Neill, Gary Stevens, who were builders and used to work in that area doing houses. Uh, Russell Fairfax, who was just a little bit older than me, but went to Matraville High and got selected to play for the Wallabies as a, as a schoolboy doing his HSC. And also the first grade captain of Randwick Cricket Club lived around the corner from me, a guy called Alan Turner, and he played test cricket and one-day cricket for Australia. So there were these people around that, even though it was a tough area to grow up and most people were working class, my dad drove a, a, a truck out of the Boral Oil Refinery out at La Perouse, and my mum was a home mum. Not saying she wasn't allowed to work, but that's what it was in those days. So most people were of that ilk and battlers, and I'm glad I grew up there. I'm really glad I grew up there. Now, 60 years is a fairly long time and there actually aren't that many people who've lived around the eastern suburbs for that length of time. How has the area changed through your eyes? Look, when I first 
left Matraville, I went and lived down the beach with a few of my mates in Torrington Road. We hired a, a rented a house there, and that was fantastic. And then the first place I bought was in Clove Valley in 1987. I was living with my prospective wife, and then we bought a place in Bronte. So I'd lived in Coogee, Clove Valley, and Bronte. And then I'm 23 years ago, I moved back to Maroora. So what's the biggest change? Property prices, without a doubt. I mean, people didn't want to live in Maroubra. You know, even when I first was starting to spend more time around Coogee in the back end of the 70s when I went down there to play cricket for Randwick, I mean, Coogee was a pretty rough place, mate. You know, there were – if you went to the Coogee Bay Hotel on a Friday Saturday night, you saw 10 blues. I mean, it was, it was a really, really rough place. And, of course, when people realised that it was – I say this with respect, I've always called that area – where I live, the hub of the universe, because everything is available there. Everything happens there. I mean, I'm sure there's people in other areas of Sydney that would say the same thing, but, you know, when you live in the eastern suburbs and you've got from Watson's Bay to Botany Bay and all those fantastic areas around, it's such a great place to live. But, you know, when property prices lift, that forces working-class people out and I think a different style of, of people live in those areas now. You know, there's a lot of very, very wealthy people. You've got to have a million dollars to buy a unit now anywhere around there, the suburbs that I've mentioned. And it's got really busy. I mean, I remember Anzac Parade after you left Kingsford when I was a kid, down Bunurong Road or Anzac Parade, there was hardly a car. Now it's a lot of people and a lot of people want to live out there because there's it's so close to everything. It's just into the city, the airport's there. You've got so much recreation, golf courses, sporting fields, all sorts of stuff. It's a great place to live. You've touched on the fact that sport is deeply embedded into eastern suburbs culture. Who first introduced you to cricket and when and why did Mike Whitney pick up his first bat and ball? My first introduction to cricket was definitely not through my family. My family, my father's family were from East Lakes mascot and they were just, oh, welded on Rabbitohs people. I mean, if you were born in the Whitney family, you were on day one, the red and green was put on your forehead, you were given a red and green eye and that was it. My mum was an old Paddo girl, so she was a closet rooster supporter, never used to talk about that much when the Whitney family were around. But she had an uncle who had played for Paddington in the cricket, which was a grade club way back at the turn of the century. And I was playing cricket at school. That's where I first picked up a cricket bat. And when I was about 10, Uncle Jimmy gave me a pair of batting gloves, which were the old green spiky ones in those days. But I just thought it was just amazing to have my own pair of batting gloves. So when I got to about 11, a couple of mates of mine said, oh, look, there's this guy down at Botany United Cricket Club and he's trying to get an under-12s under team together and we should go down and play. So we played under 12s as 11 and 12-year-olds. And then after 12, you had to go and play with the men. There was no under 16 competition. So we found ourselves at Boralee Park and all these places playing second grade with men in shorts and the old volley OCs. And we did that for a couple of years. I'd always loved my cricket button and was broadcast on the ABC in those old days. And I really used to love watching our guys play and, and and as I got into my early teens and mid-teens, guys like Dennis Lilly and, and I was pretty much only ever a bowler, Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson, Graham McKenzie just before that had been these amazing fast bowlers for Australia and it, it just sort of perked up my interest a lot. So I'd started to get a bit serious, still playing rugby league. I only wanted to play for the Rabbitohs. That was my dream, but this cricket was starting to become fun. And we played, I'll tell you about this one game. It was Botany United versus Marcellin. And this older gentleman was captaining this Marcellin school team. And what I didn't know was his son was playing with all his son's mates from Marcellin. And this fellow had played first grade for Randwick and made double centuries in first grade when he was a young bloke. And I didn't know that. I just thought it was some old digger coming out to bat at Pioneer Park out at Malabar. So I give it to him on the mats, like bounced mm. him and ran in. I had the big afro and... <laughs> And he rang the secretary of Randwick the very next day and said, there is this nutcase with an Afro hairstyle running around South Sydney Juniors playing for Botany United. He's a left arm quick and I played against him yesterday and he's got a bit of tail. 
you should ring him up. So on the back of that, the secretary of Randwick started ringing my house. Now, the procedure was on a Saturday with me at the time, down the beach at 8, surf till about 11, get home at midday and then turn up to play with my mates in the afternoon in the shorts in the volley ACs at Pioneer or Boralee or wherever we were playing. Anyway, this bloke kept ringing up and I'm going, no, to me mum. Anyway, one Saturday morning, uh, it would have been about the second or third game of the season, 1976-77. I've got the board waxed up. I'm ready to go. The phone rings and I hear my mum go, yes, Mr Gardner, he'll be there. Yes, yes, no dramas. So she said, you're playing fourth grade for Randwick today at Snape Park. I went, no, I'm not. I'm going surfing. I said, I've got no spikes and I've got no long trousers. She said, I've already rang Valda, who was my best mate's mother. You can borrow Wayne's trousers and they're bringing a bag full of spikes for you at Snape. So I rode my push bike there and we bowled that day and I took four for 16 and that was the day that my life changed. Now, if it had been 10 minutes later, I'm gone down the beach. So the timing of that phone call with that Lyle Gardner, who's still a dear, dear friend of mine, Lyle, was amazing. That's a moment in my life that changed the whole trajectory of where I was going in my life. And I started playing fourth grade for Randwick in 1976. So that was the moment you realised that you had a bit of talent. <sighs> Look, to play grade cricket was such a big thing in in the area, even to play fourth grade. If you played fourth grade, like, you, you could play. If you played first grade, mate, you were a really good cricketer. So to turn up at this fourth grade game and run in and bowl, like, 15 overs this day and take four for 16, I was in a bit of shock because I didn't think that I was good enough to mix it with that level or you just don't know. But I remember riding riding the push bike home to Matraville that night going, wow, I've, I've done okay there and, and, and maybe, maybe I can get a permanent spot in fourth grade. That was my only mindset. So, you know, then training was Tuesday and Thursday down at Coogee Oval and you were mixing with first graders and Alan Turner was there and Ron Crippen was there who played for New South Wales. John Dyson was playing first grade for us who was just about to secure a spot in the Australian side opening the batting. He was playing for New South Wales. It was just like. Wow, down at Coogee Oval. So that was huge inspiration and that started my journey up the grades. So how old were you when you first played for Australia? Oh, that's a good question and probably too young at the time. But, look, I made my way through the ranks at Randwick very quickly. So I played like fourth grade and then fourth grade and then almost jumped third grade into second grade. Then in 79-80, right at about halfway through the season, I get picked in first grade. And I absolutely blitzed him. I took like 40-something wickets in 10 games and had ruffled up a few blokes that were playing in the Shirl competition. And the following season, much to my surprise, I found myself in the New South Wales squad, bowled amazingly well at the start of the 80-81 year and was in the team and played my first game for New South Wales, age 21 at the Gabba, 17th to the 20th of October 1980, and I'm sitting next to Doug Walters in the dressing room, who was my hero. Him and Johnny Sattler from the Rabbitohs, they were my sporting heroes. And here I am with Doug, who's having a durry, shuffling the cards, looking at the, the horses in the paper and having a cup of tea and then had 10 beers after the game. And it was just par for the course. So all that stuff you heard about Doug was true, I found out on day one. So that was an amazing experience. I played four games and I was 12th man for the other six. So I spent the whole season with the team and it was pretty good way to do it because when you're in the dressing room as 12th, a first-class dressing room is is a, a really private place. And, like, for example, when you go to the SCG, uh, you can't sit there because Doug Walters has been sitting there for 15 years and Rick McCosker, the captain, sits there. Well, where am I sitting? In the toilet where all the first – timers sit for a day and then they go, no, that's your spot there. So you've got to learn the politics of the room and who has a drink and he doesn't drink, but he wants a lit cigarette in the ashtray and a beer the moment he comes off the field. Well, I'd be lighting these cigarettes, not wanting to draw on it, lighting them with a thing and putting it in there so they could just come up and have this story. So that first season was amazing and some of those guys were my heroes. I decided to go overseas 
and play Lancashire League cricket in that off-season. So I go over and I play for a club called Fleetwood. And again, another phone call. There's been a number of phone calls in my life that have changed the course of my life. And I'm just home this day with Edith and Eddie Funk. Now, when he introduced himself to me, Eddie, he had that Lancashire accent. He said, hello, I'm Eddie Funk. And I went, can you spell that, please? And he went, F-U-N-K. I went, good. (laughs) I thought I heard something else, but they were, and he was 70-odd and Edith was 60 and I was 21 and I boarded with these people. So it was a bit of a shock to me and I'm pretty sure a bit of a shock to them when I didn't come home a few nights, early doors and all this sort of stuff. But I'm home this day and the phone rings and Edith said, can you answer the phone? And she answered the phone like this, hello, Fleetwood 2791. So I went, hello, Fleetwood 2791. He said, widow, was that you? I went, yeah. This was Greg Geese, who I'd played a couple of Shirl games with, who was on a scholarship at Gloucester. He said, Mike Proctor, the great South African, and a guy called Brian Brain, who had taken a 1,000 wickets in first-class cricket, were injured. They were looking for another bowler to fill in. I've mentioned your name. But Gloucester, first-class cricket. So I rang our chairman and he said, as long as you play for us on the Saturday or the Saturday, Sunday, if there's a game midweek, go and play for Gloucester, mate. This is first, this is county cricket. So I went down, had a trial, signed a contract, whatever, played a couple of games for them. In the meantime, Australia's in England touring. And it ended up being called Botham's Ashes, this series. So we get to the day before the fifth test. And I'm sitting at Cheltenham and we're playing Hampshire, who had Malcolm Marshall and Gordon Greenwich. And Malcolm's into us. Whew. He was sharp and just a brilliant bowler. And the, fa- and the roomie comes out with the phone and says, phone call, pick it up. This bloke says, it's the manager of the Australian cricket team here and you've been picked for Australia. I went, imbecile, because I thought it was a mate of mine, Gina, because we knew that Lawson and Hogg were injured and they might be bringing another bowler. He rang back. He went, this is Fred Bennett, manager of the Australian cricket team, Michael. And I knew Fred from Sydney. He said, you've been selected into the squad, get in the car now. Take, reckon, and we were all padded up, Malcolm's but I reckon I didn't get them pads off quick. I didn't want to face Malcolm Marshall. Drove up to Manchester, met Kim Hughes, saw Fred, got given all my gear, and I debuted the next day in the fifth test. It was my seventh first-class match, and I was 22. Is there anything in particular that sticks out from that test? that still rings in your brain today? Everything. Everything. It's the clarity of that game in my mind, I think because it was such a shock and no one before that had been in a country when their national team was touring that country and pulled into a side like that. I was the first one ever in the history of Australian Test Cricket for that to happen. But, look, I remember straight away... I met Kim Hughes and I called him Mr. Hughes. And he said, no, call me Kim. And I remember going, call me Whit. All right, mate. Sure. He said, and Fred Bennett said, there's your key. Go up to the room and we're having a press conference at six to announce that you're in the 11 and you'll be in the team tomorrow. So I go up to this room and I put the key in and you're roomed with, everybody gets their own room now. You're roomed with people all the time there. And there was all this gear and I remember looking at this beautifully crafted leather port up against the wall and in gold letters it had DK Lily. And I went, who's again? And I only met Dennis very quickly for 10 minutes when we played the short game in Perth. Next minute he walked in and I stood at attention. I, I didn't know what to do. And I roomed with Dennis Lilly in my first test match. This is one of the greats. And for us, he was the inspiration while we were all there. And he said things like this to me. You're in the best 11 that's available, right? So you've earned your spot. Just look at that emblem on your jumper and remember who you're playing for and we just expect you to give 100%. Well, I carried that right through with me in my whole career. Every time I represented New South Wales and Australia, it was pretty much how I played anyway. But when you're hearing it from the great one, well, it's just like a little (laughs) So the very next day we get to Manchester and we bowl and I'm out there bowling first change after Dennis Lilly and Terry Alderman open the bowling. The opposition... Uh, I'll see if I can run through their batting order just to tell you the level of what they had. Boycott, Graham Gooch. I can't remember who batted number three, but I should. Four was Gower, five was Gadding, six was Brewley, seven was Botham. Alan Knott was the wicketkeeper. 
They had Bob Willis, Paul Allard, who made his debut, and John Embry, the spinner. So they were a fantastic team. And in the end, England nicked us out, and Ian Botham, who was relieved of the captaincy, got 149 and five for one, got 118 in that game I played. But I didn't realise that it was going to change my life so much. And I'd only spent a year and a half in first-class cricket. So I'd come back and I played in the next test. I came, I went over there with a handful of games under my belt to play club cricket, come back with two test matches under my belt. And that number that you get 313, I'm Australia's 313th Australian test cricketer. And it changed my life forever. I came back and you may or may not remember, but we were sponsored by Tui's that all of a sudden they wanted to do an ad with me. So I did an ad with the West Indies where I drove Joel Garner, which I really didn't do, but magic of television and camera. And then that, again, that ad just completely changed my whole life. So going to England in 81 was a really, really unbelievable experience. According to ESPN Cricket, your greatest success in international level came in 91-92 when you claimed your test best, four for 68 and seven for 27 in the fifth test against India. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what was happening on that day? That first test that I played was 1981 and I knew that I'd been selected because there was no one else there really. And then I fought for six years to get back into the test side and I played one test at that series and that was the test I blocked out Sir Richard Hadley in Melbourne to save a game. Then I had to wait another two years, 1989, to play another test. So now I was in my 30s and I was a seasoned professional and I knew what I was capable of, how to train, how to prepare, how to execute. And I found myself more in the Australian team after 30 to 35 than prior to that. So we get to this series against India. It's fantastic. I'm in the hunt. I play in the first test in Brisbane, miss Sydney and Melbourne, play in Adelaide, and then the last test. They were pretty much beaten then. The four for in the first innings I was pretty happy with, but the seven for 27 in the second innings, Look, I've spoken to people about this and I've spoken to, you know, people like Stephen War, and I'll, I'll mention Shane, Glenn McGrath, Sachin Tendulkar, Brian Lara, Viv. These ilk of players up there, they have – the whole game's about replication and how good you are at replicating where you want that ball to be and how you want it to be. And those legends have a 100 of those days. People like me have – maybe five in your career. And that was one of those days where I wasn't even thinking about running in. My pace to the wicket was perfect. It was a Perth wicket that had a little bit of carry in it. You know, I'm hitting heels as gloves here, so I know it's coming out perfect and I'm not putting any effort and it's just swinging around a little bit and hitting the seam and the length was immaculate. And that was one of my days. And I remember one wicket in particular Sanjay Mandraker, who was a very good player. His father had captained India and he was a very good player and a lovely, lovely bloke, does a lot of commentary now. I was walking back and I'd had a couple of wickets and you want to get a fifer and I had had a fifer in test cricket. I'm shining the ball and in my mind, I just saw me come in, just start to swing it in, hit the seam, jag away, he nicks it and Heels catches it. And it happened exactly like that when I bowled the next ball. Now, I've read that Glenn McGrath and Shane and these guys – do this visual thing or did it a lot and then it just happened for them. Definitely happened for me once and it was on that day and I've never forgotten seeing it in my mind and then running in and doing it. It was almost an out-of-body experience and you hear players or, or sports people talk about being in the zone, right in the zone. That day in my career, I had a, another, took a seven for against the West Indies in Adelaide as well. But that went over three days. It went over the back end of the second day, all the third day and the start of the fourth day. I bowled like 32 overs, seven for 89. This was an hour and a bit. This was 12.1 overs, I think, seven for 27. And for that hour and a bit, mate, I was just on. Nothing was going to stop me from getting done about seven, but a performance that day, I just it was just insane. Everything, bowled a bumper, it was right up under their chin. Bowled the one that went across, they played and missed at it. It was just one of those magical days. So I walked away from, from that day and in those three tests, I took 17 wickets in three tests and 
I was really proud of myself. It was a was a magic day. It was a magic day. So looking back over your entire career, is there one single wicket that stands out above all else? Uh, that's I'm, I'm flicking through a lot of wickets now in my head. There's probably one that's talked about more than any and you don't realise it at the time, but in that first test match where I played at the Gabba, Sachin was like 19. He'd, he'd only been in the side a year. I think he might have had one test century. It was his first tour to Australia. He was already ticked as the wonderkind. I mean, what Sonny Gavaska said, said about him was just amazing. So he comes in at the Gabba and I'm on and I bowl this first one to him and he drives me for four straight through the covers. Then I bowl him on a little bit shorter of a length and he sorts, tries to drive it, but it just swung in it and he got it past Craig McDermott. It went for another four. So he's gone, he's going for me. I run in the next delivery and it's this beautiful in-swinging Yorker that bowls in. So that's great. Sachin's out. Now, as his career progressed and he became one of the top echelons, like 20 years later, this journalist rang me and it was Sachin's last tour of Australia. He goes, I want to take you back to the Gabba in 1991. I go, yeah. He said, you bowled him. Yeah. He said, do you realise that you're the first Australian on Australian soil to take his wicket? I went, I didn't think about that, but I'll be telling everybody about that now. Don't worry. So that Sachin's first dismissal in Australia is spoken about more now that he's become one of the greats of all time. And they go, oh, yeah, Mike Whitney bowled him with a in-swinging Yorker. But, look, I got Viv out a couple of times, Brian Lara out a couple of times, Beefy both them out, David Gower was my first test wicket. They're very – that first test wicket, mate, that is a really special – and even though it's a public moment, it's a real private moment for you. It's, it's, it's the culmination of like – thought process, work, dedication. And even though it was really young in my career and I probably got lucky to play those first two tests, those moments have never escaped me. And they're the moments that make you, you just want to have more of those moments and you want to play in a winning team. Are there any cheeky PG-friendly stories that you'd like to share with the listeners of Could You Voice? Uh, a lot of them I can't, <laughs> as you could imagine, because when you're playing and I can only comment on Sheffield Shield cricket because I only played a handful of games for Gloucester in the county. Or whether you're playing test cricket, mate, let me tell you, the gentleman's game thing, uh, I didn't experience that in my time. I mean, it's all nice and warm and fuzzy to say it, but when New South Wales is playing Queensland, mate, it is on for young and old and some of the sledging is, is so clever and so witty. But if you said to me, what's the best sledge? that you've ever had where I just wanted to dig a hole and jump in the ground. It was during that series against India and I'm 12th man at Sydney and I was really disappointed because that was my home ground and Jeff Lawson and me and Steve Waugh and Brad McNamara and the seamers, we knew how to bowl on that ground really well. And one of the great disappointments of my life is I never got to play a test match on the SCG. But Ravi Shastri had done a little bit of hamstring damage. Now, he ended up getting 200 and Sachin got 148. And Bruce Reed broke down in over number four. So I fielded for two days where I just said, oh, if I had a been bowling, it was great. Anyway, Ravi's chipped one to me just at short square leg and he's gone to take off and I've got the ball and I've given him a god for, get back in. And he's got back in and I've thrown it to heels and he's looked at me and he said, wait, if you could bat and ball as well as you talk, you would not be 12th man. <laughs> and I just went, oh, where can I jump into a hole? Because it's true. It's exactly true what he said. If I was a better cricketer, I wouldn't be 12th but all you do is gob off. He reminds me of that when I see Ravi. A lot, yeah, yeah, which is not a lot, but remember when I said if you could not all that so much and bat and ball better, you would not be 12. Yeah, yeah, Ravi. Ha, ha, ha. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Changing gears a tiny bit, but staying on cricket, Rarewick Petersham has the undeniable claim to be the oldest cricket club in the world with combined 232 years of history. You're the president of the club. Tell us a little bit about this history. Yeah, well, they're playing years, you know, over 250 playing years. Look, I only ever played for Randwick and without some of the inspiration from the guys down there, I don't think I would have ever had a 
a cricket career. In the back end of the 90s, Cricket New South Wales was looking at merging a couple of clubs and they wanted Randwick, uh, Waverley, which had just changed its name to Eastern Suburbs, and the University of New South Wales to merge to become the Eastern Suburbs Cricket Club. We were 100 years old at Randwick. We didn't like that idea. We didn't like that idea at all. So we fought that off. Then they did merge some clubs and Perdish and Marrickville was coming under, well, they were in their sights. They wanted them to merge with Balmain or West, but we shared a, a border. The western border of Randwick area was the eastern border of Perdish and Marrickville. We sat down and we had um, had talks with them and then we decided to amalgamate. So we, both of those old clubs got put on the heap, and I say that with respect, and we created a new club called Randwick Perdisham. So the origins of Randwick Perdisham are this. Perdisham Cricket Club, Marrickville Cricket Club, they then merged to create Perdisham Marrickville, Randwick. So there's four clubs there behind us and now we're 20 years old coming into this season. So I got asked when the clubs amalgamated by the the, the last two presidents, the last president, Perdish and Marrickville, and the last president, Randwick, would I be the new president? And it was just off my radar. I'd just been on the board of the Rabbitohs for three years. When we'd got kicked out, I ended up the deputy chairman and we'd had court cases and really high-level, high-pressure, blood-on-the-boardroom table stuff, which I just was very wet under the years when I first turned up there. I learned very quickly that there was big stakes in a big game with the rugby league. Anyway, that finished and we got over the line. And it was just about then when they said, would you be the president of the club? And I went, oh, man, I don't know. Look, I'll do it for two years and try and get the foundation stones in and then I'm out. I've just thrown my hand up for re-election for my 20th year and the AGM is next week, next Sunday. Did I ever think I'd hang in there for 20 years as the president? No. Have I enjoyed it? 99% of the time, yes. But when you're, when you're a part of an institute that's got so many people in it, you know, sometimes some people aren't going to agree with the way the committee goes or a decision's made or I should be in another grade or so, there, you know, there's always something to sort out. But pretty much we've won 15 competitions and two club championships in our first 20 years and that's amazing, amazing stat for any club in their first 20 years. So look, it's it's been really interesting, and it, and look, we're we're very much part of the community, and we keep trying to drive that. There's a, a a lot of talk and movement about women's teams. I mean, I've spoken to you because you want to come and play for us, Marge, which is great. But very soon we'll have one or two women's teams. We've got seven grades that we play: five in the grade competition and two metropolitan cups, an under twenty one side and under sixteen side. So the hard work is really making sure that we got great relationships with the councils. That's Randwick City Council and the Inner West Council. They own the grounds that we play on, making sure our sponsors are good and they're getting their value for what they put in, making sure the players are happy, making sure you've got good committee people around you that really want to do the hard work. And, and we're very proud of what we've achieved. And this year will be a big celebration of our first 20 years. Randy Peets have a very special relationship wanna, with Cricket Island. Now that you say that, I tried to stop Randy Peets. <laughs> in the first week or two of my presidency, but it had escaped. It had gone away. It had already got out there. So, yeah, crazy stuff. <laughs> so Randy Peets do have a very special relationship, though, with Cricket Island. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Prior to the 2015, 2015 World Cup, Ireland made it. And Ireland are a test-playing nation now and they've got a lot of really good cricketers. And two of the younger members of the club come to me and said, we should – invite Ireland to Coogee Oval for 10 days to warm up for the World Cup that's on later. They can come as their pre-season warm-up. I remember looking at them going, turn it up, mate. You're joking. This is the international cricket side. I mean, we'll need accommodation. We'll need transport. We'll need somewhere for them to eat. We'll need centre wicket practice. We'll need this, 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 this. And they looked at me and just went, yeah. Oh, don't you love young people? So I went, go away, write me a paper, come over. Cut a real long story short because my stories are long, as you know now, Marge. They came out. We had them at Coogee Oval for nearly two weeks. We accommodated them. We had places for them to eat. 
We put a bit of a gig on with them. And after that, and they played pretty well in 2015. After that, we created a bit of a scholarship between Cricket Island, Randwick, Petersham, and every year since then, we've had an Irish cricketer come and play with us. And five of them have now gone on to represent Ireland. And I suppose the biggest tick is Andrew Balburnie, who's now the Irish captain, came out about three or four years ago. And when he became captain of Ireland, I sent him a, an email that night saying, you'll always be a Randy Pete, mate. You're one of our brothers, but we're just so proud of you. And he wrote back saying that when he arrived, he was struggling with his game technically and in his head. And all of us at Randwick Petersham got him right. And he's been the top run scorer over the last three or four years and now captaining the side. So to play a part in that and all of the guys that have come out, the Tector brothers, Stephen Tahini was here last year. He got picked on one of their tours, didn't play, but he's reserved wicket keeper. I'm stoked that the club and myself can have a part in, in encouraging and making these guys better cricketers. I can't say better people because, mate, those Irish guys, they could not be better people. Mate, there is not one. If you said to me, have you had a negative experience with the Irish players coming out? No. Not one. Not one has not turned up. Not one has not been ready to play. So professional, really professional. And that's good for our young blokes to see these guys that are on the cusp of playing international cricket. So great relationships with them. We've sent some of our younger players over there to play in Dublin. And we're hoping to continue that for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a really wonderful thing to be a part of. And when you get them out, they do love a night out in the Irish, let me tell you. You'll be hard-pressed to not find them at the Coogee Bay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've told Chris Chung, make sure they don't stay too late, Chungy. They've got to play cricket. <laughs> so, Mike, how has the game changed and where do you see it going in the future? Look, just from my experience of playing, T20 didn't exist in my time, and it took me between five and 10 years to get T20 in my head. When I was playing, if you bowled 10 overs, you didn't want to go for more than 30. It was three runs and over, and you wanted to get three wickets, two or three wickets in innings. So 30 overs, three for 90. And that was, you've done your job. Any better than that, three for 60, you've done a really good job. Five for 60 is great. But to go for seven or eight and over in a one-day game and they're not bothered about that, the bowler, that really took me a lot because I would have been just pissed getting bonked over the, the, the boundary every second over or whatever. But technology's changed. The bats. Huh. People say to me, do you reckon Viv Richards had hit a big ball with these new bats? Viv hit a big ball with the matchstick that he used. They wouldn't be able to find the ball if some of the guys I play with were using these bats. So the technology's changed amazing. T20's changed the game amazing. I think it's taken a lot of heat off one-day cricket. But the worry is, of course, for all us old heads, is that every now and again they go, oh, has test cricket got relevance? Because the money now is in T20 cricket. I mean, can you blame someone for going over to play in the IPL and they have a three-year contract for like $4.5 million. I mean, it's just incredible money. And there's guys now, see, in, in when I was growing up, you never set your heart on this. I want to play one-day cricket for Australia. No, 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 we want to play Test cricket and Sheffield Shield cricket. The long form of the game is, to me, the game. But what I've seen with T20 cricket is they've formed their own game. Everybody thought, oh, if you're a spinner in T20, you're going to get smashed out of the ground. They open the bowling and they're hard to get away. And the fielding positions are amazing. And you listen to someone like Ricky Ponting talk you through a T20 game in a live broadcast. It's fascinating. When does the bowler come on? This matchup, I'm bringing him on now because you're in and that's the matchup that I want. He can knock you over. You can't score runs against him because he's going to bowl round the wicket and these sort of deliveries and we've got the field set like that on these angles. So cricket's always been a game about mathematical angles and time. It's just squeezed down in T20, always get a big crowd. Look, my understanding is it provides 60 or 70% of the revenue, world revenue for world cricket. So it's here to stay and there's talks of 
10 over games or 20 over games or another little fix on that because we're all so busy and who can go and sit out at the Sheffield Shield for four days and watch the cricket anymore? Well, for me, those games have got to stay. That's the real game. So T20 changed the game and, of course, the next thing I'll say is money. I get asked, how much did I get in my first Sheffield Shield match? It was in a little yellow packet, which we used to get our cash in. I should have kept it. It had MR Whitney, New South Wales versus Queensland, Gabba and the date, four times $25, 100 gross, $12 tax. I took home 88, uh, 78 bucks and 88 bucks. 78 bucks, $12 tax. What's that? 88 bucks. How good's me maths? And I'm a cricketer. But I just couldn't believe I'd been paid to play. But everybody had another job. And if you didn't, it was a Doug Walters thing where you went and worked for twoies or did after dinner speaking. Now, I wouldn't mind what the guys are on playing Sheffield Shield. I mean, I think they've contracted hundreds of thousands of dollars, a couple hundred grand, top contract playing Sheffield Shield. So you can make a living out of playing Sheffield Shield now. And you want to sign a T20 contract. And if you get in the Australian team, it's a bonus. So, look, the biggest difference is this. There was no pathway to secure your financial future pretty much for 90% of the time that I played cricket. Now there is. But that's changed things as well because I meet a lot of parents now that want to push, push, push because they want their sons to play in the IPL and earn a million dollars a year. And it's not really about that. It's what he wants to do because professional sports are very, very tough gig to take on. Very tough. And I think people only look at the, the wonderful, beautiful side of it. And that's what we've talked about today. We haven't spoken about my nine knee operations, my two broken arms, the steel plate in my foot, the times when you're out injury and they go, you'll never play again. And how's that affect you mentally? Or when you know you're the best bowler in the country and they don't pick you in that test match and you don't know why until you go up and ask them. Then the four selectors say, oh, no, I, we all picked you. Well, how come I didn't play? Someone's lying. So there's all that to go through and your family goes through that as well. And it's, it's, but it's the money now that's, that's changed the game, the money, the equipment, the bats and T20 cricket. So do you think that we're playing too much cricket? It's a really busy schedule now. You don't get time to sit down and smell the roses basically. I mean, if you're someone like a Davey Warner and he's really unique, we play opens the batting in the test side, in the one-day side, and in the T20 side. He covers the whole gamut. He's there. If the T20 side's touring the one day, he's there. And he, test side to it, he's there. Steve Smith's the same. Uh, where other guys are only T20 players and he might be a one-day player and he might cross a bit of a boundary, whatever. But it's a lot of cricket. It's a lot of money. And look, if you had said to me, Murph Hughes, Craig McDermott, someone like that in my day, you have an arrest for the next test match, you would have knocked the bloke out because I'm not resting. I'm not going to give Paul Rifle an opportunity to come in and get Pfeiffer, take my spot. So it was, we just kept going on and on and on. This idea of, of resting for a test match or only bowling 28 deliveries in the nets. I mean, we would bowl for an hour. Now, that probably cost us physically, but that was just the way it was in my day. So to get back to your question, I don't know what too much cricket is, but there's a lot of cricket going on now around the world. And, and again, if you want to be one of those T20 guys, well, there's a tournament here. There's one in New Zealand. There's one going to be in America. There's one in India. There's one in England. There's one in South Africa, one in Bangladesh. So you've only got to get 50 grand for that one, 100 there and 80 there and 100 there, and you can make half a million dollars playing T20 cricket. And the thing about T20 cricket is this. If you slog first ball and get caught on the boundary, who cares? It's T20. If one day you bowl your four overs and you go for 40, 10 and over, who cares? Chris Gale got you. If you slog in a test match and get caught on the boundary first ball, you'll get booed off because it's a, it's a, it's a five-day game. So I think a lot of that T20 and one-day cricket's creeping in to five-day cricket and you see guys playing shots that – they just shouldn't be playing in test cricket. But it's exciting. You know, you don't want test cricket to be boring. If test cricket goes at two runs and over, everybody's asleep. You want it to go at three, three and a half, four. So in a day's play, you're going to get 300, 350 runs. And that's where Steve Waugh changed it. 
He demanded the side that he captained for Australia made minimum 300 to 350 a day. If you're all out, don't worry about it. We've got 350 and we've got four days to go. We can bowl them out twice. So strategies have changed a little bit, but look, I'm actually fascinated with T20 cricket now the more I watch it because, look, Daniel Sams plays for us and he plays for the Sydney Thunder and last year he was the leading wicket taker and he's a left-arm seamer, so I've taken great interest in him because that's what I was. I spoke to him at the end of last season and I said, how many slower balls have you developed? He went, oh, half a dozen. Within one year. Now, I bowled a slower ball in the nets for about three seasons before I was game enough to take it into a game. They've got this one now, one out the back of the hand and a slower bumper, which, mate, if, if Bobby Simpson had have seen me bowl a slower bumper in the nets, he would have gone 10 laps of the ground and 150 push-ups. Where now all of these things have developed. So there's a really cool side to the T20 game where you just, I never thought, Bowling would develop in that way, but they've had to because it's T20 and you've got to try and get these guys out and break their rhythm up from hitting the ball. It's fascinating. Coming back to Randy Peets. Yeah. Who are the up-and-coming players people should keep an eye out for? Well, Daniel's one. I mean, Daniel's just been added to the Australian one-day squad, so he probably won't go away with the squad, but to be added to the big squad and hang out with the boys for a while means he's in their head and he's in the mix, which is great. Probably, look, we've had some great players at Randy Pete. Simon Cadditch played for us when he came from Western Australia. Nathan Horrits came down from Queensland, played for us, got in New South Wales, played for Australia. But our <coughs> original, our original homegrown legend is Usman. Usman Kawaja was playing first grade with us at 16 and then played all his cricket with us before he went to Queensland. We now have another kid called Jason Sanger, who's come down from Newcastle. He's been with us, I think, three years, captain the Australian under-19s. He's had a couple of games for New South Wales. But he's – look, it, this is a really – I've always found this a weird word. So he's got potential. You can say – and I'm not much of a gambler or race person, but you say this horse has got potential. That means nothing until the horse gets past the winning post. And if it doesn't ever win – who gives a crap about how much potential he had? I've just seen Jason moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, understanding his game. And he's, you know, he'll he's probably been earmarked as a future captain of, of New South Wales. So already at 21, you have to have that sort of air about you. I've seen him make some some brilliant innings, but he's certainly one to watch. There's there's two, Daniel Sams and Jason Sanger. We've also got some kids coming down from the bush this year, three fast bowlers. They're all under 20 and the shortest is six foot six. I mean, I wish I had been that tall. I would have been really nasty. So we're always encouraging and trying to bring the country kids in. Kalen Maladay is one. He's from Lismore or Bangalore. Uh, he came down last year and Kalen is six foot six and he's 19. Now, they're all a bit Glenn McGrary's lean on at the moment, so we want to bulk them up. But there's more to that too. Like your mum and dad live in Bangalore up near Byron Bay. We're bringing him down to Sydney. You've got to make sure that mum and dad are happy for what we've got for him and what he's doing for work or his education, all those sorts of things. So there could be a couple of other names coming up there, but definitely those two, um, Daniel Sams and Jason Sanger, are two to watch from our club. Coogee Oval is home to the Randy Peets and the Galloping Greens. Now, Galloping Greens have famously played a number of international games there, the All Blacks and most recently Argentina. Argentina. yeah. It was great. I saw you down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Are there any international tests in the pipeline for Randy Peets? Well, we played a one-day game there against Ireland. So after that week and a bit they had training and whatever, we said to them, we'll put our best first-grade side together and we'll play you in a one-day game on Kujiaval, and they agreed to that. So Randy Peets are the only club in Sydney that's actually ever played an international team on their home ground, and I'll say with a smile, we beat them <laughs> that day, and they went hard. This is a warm-up to the World Cup. Our boys were just on that day. It was a hard-fought game, but we won. So 
that was a landmark moment, but coming up, well, coming up now, there's nothing in the pipeline yet. We did talk about Ireland coming out for the T20 World Cup and we talked about them coming again to Coogee, but that's been knocked on the head. So, and we hadn't made enough preparations this year because of COVID and how weird it's been to actually have them then if the T20 World Cup was going to be on. But we had talked about having him back and I think they would have come back gladly because we organised it perfectly last time and it was not a problem for them. So different to the All Blacks who's after their game against the Wick said, we're never going to play a club team ever again. Yeah, that's right. Now, you know that day when that game was on, I reckon I left my run from Maroubra 10 minutes late and could not get anywhere near the ground. So I actually missed that day. But the day the Galloping Greens played Argentina, that was an enormous day for me because they'd put a new scoreboard up and they'd renamed the scoreboard the Ella Brothers Whitney scoreboard and it got officially done on that day. And I had my son Fergus down there that day and I grew up with the Ella Brothers. We played rugby league for La Perouse for 10 years from age 6 to 16 together and then they went and played rugby and I went and changed clubs and ended up at Mascot. But we've been mates 55 years and to stand there with Mark and Glenn and Gary on that day and see our names on that scoreboard, which will be at Coogee, I don't know how long, but I presume for a while, was just mind-blowing to me. And I remember them asking, the council rang me up and said, do you want it to be the Mike Whitney Ella Brothers or the Ella Brothers Mike Whitney? I just said, eh, eh, I'm happy to go after the great Ella Brothers and I'm just happy to have my last name there. So the scoreboard on that day, and it was very emotional. I remember walking back, looking at my son, and I had a tear in my eye too because he was there and he, he said, I'll never forget that day, Dad. It means you must have put in. I said, well, I don't know, mate. I remember buying a lot of overs at Coogee and playing rugby league there from age six. So I've left a, a fair bit of blood, sweat and tears on that ground for sure. Mike, quickly, I want your elevator pitch. Why should boys and girls pick up a bat and ball and make cricket their sport of choice? That's a really good question, Marge. And in the old days, I think a lot of parents were worried about the hard ball. And if you got hit, and you got, if you got hit when you were 10 or 11 or 12, that could finish you for good. Now things have changed. They've got, you know, the Woolworths, my cricket things. And just look, Ramwick Petersham last year, for example, we started to run clinics for girls under 16 because we know that that movement is really, really big. We catered for 25, 48 turned up down at Coogee. We had to ring people up to get them down there, which is what's happening with women's sport. But again, a couple of the fathers, and then they felt the ball and the bat was not a, a wooden bat. It's like a hard plastic bat that you're not going to get hurt with. They didn't need any protection. So everybody sort of goes, oh, and this is a great way to get them in just to get their hand-eye coordination going. Why should they play cricket? <laughs> it's the best game on planet Earth. <laughs> it's a Look, I've got to say this seriously. It's a real thinking person's game. I've always said this, and I can only say it about the longer version of the game. Test cricket is played over five days. There's mathematical calculations going on all the time through that. When do we declare? What end do I bowl him from? What mathematical angle do I have that fielder on so he hasn't got to run around the ball to give him an extra one? I want him to cut it off on that angle. So there's mathematical angles and time and decisions to be made. And if you make one wrong decision, you can lose the game. So it's a real game of chess played with 22 guys on a field for five days. And then that sort of steps down as you play overs games, 50 overs each. You've, it just gets a bit more compressed. But I'm a, anybody who's played cricket is a numbers person. I'm calculating percentages of things all day. Just I just do it because we know our strike rates, your average, how many games, what was his average. It's a numbers game. So if there's anything that I got out of cricket is I loved it, I represented my country, and it made me a mathematical, I was nearly going to say genius, but not genius, a mathematical person. Everybody I know, if you talk to Steve Waugh, we're actually talking mathematics. And you don't think about that when you're playing. So there's this overarching educational thing about it. Plus, you've got to learn your spot in the side. You've got to find out what you're good at. 
You got to ask people for help. You got to ask your parents for help. Oh, well, I'd be nothing without my mum. Nothing. Because my dad died when I was 16 and my sister was 18 and she had to take the reins over. And that was a really strange time. I didn't go off the rails, but I was trying to go off the rails and and she pulled me back and said, I, you know, these guys think you've got a bit of ability. So that that's why I'm still at the career club. I owe them my life. I'm I'm not naive enough to think that I got the job at Channel 7. I got the job at Channel 7 because I had profile coming out of the Australian cricket team. So I owe cricket and this club everything. And that's why I'm still there. And I'd like to think that there's kids playing in the South Sydney area or the Eastern Suburbs Juniors that can go on my journey and make your dreams come true. It's all a dream. And when you've actually lived that out, I mean, look, you're a poly. You must feel like you're living the dream being elected for the seat of Coogee and it's what you want to do. And and when you achieve that, mate, there's a, a lot of genuine satisfaction in yourself and you just want to, I want to say to the kids and that, this is what I say to the kids because they look at you a bit strange when you turn up. Oh, here's this test cricketer dude on TV. And the first thing I said to them, hey, I was sitting where you were at one stage. Don't worry about it. I know exactly how you feel. I was there. Then this is what I did to be able to have a bit of a go. So the encouragement of the kids to play is not only to play the sport, it's to make them a better person. It's to make them socially aware to make them be a part of a team, to know where they are within the club and what's required of them and the respect that you need to show to the older members of the club and they will help you and learn your way. And I'm sure if you learn that respect through sport, then you take that out into the community. And that's why I've got no dramas doing other things in the community because the community that I grew up with have supported me from the very first day that I went down to Ramley and I owe them. I owe them all. And I'll always feel like I owe them. So back to your original question. I hope there's some kid sitting here in 40 years' time that says, I heard that podcast with you and Marge and you inspired me to be that person sitting there talking here in 40 years' time, which would be great. I won't be around then. Now, following your stellar cricket career, you've had another successful career in TV presenting, Sydney Weekender. Gladiators, who dares wins? (laughs) Did you have a particularly favourite gig? Oh, look, Sydney Weekender, I'm in my 26th year of Sydney Weekender and I've just actually re-signed for next year as well. So that'll be my 27th year and the 28th year that the show has been on air. Because I've been in the TV game so long now, I actually know that that's really amazing, really unique. Uh, we've nearly done 1,100 episodes and it's it's just been such an amazing show to work on. I mean, every time I go away with the show, I go to somewhere and I learn about that place. You know, this is my home, Sydney, New South Wales. I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wall blue bagger when you represent your state at any sport. doesn't matter. Look, I, I just couldn't live anywhere else and I'm a New South Welshman. So to have it, this show where I go out, around New South Wales is just amazing. But I'd only been at Channel 7 for a few months and Gladiators turned up. And John Alexander had been the first referee in the first series and he had to go to Wimbledon because Seven were doing the the tennis. And they rang me and said, we need you to be the referee. So they upped my contract. That was good. (laughs) And next minute I was up there in Brisbane and that was just Oh, it was just such an insane show and one of the first reality TV shows. And a couple of months later, Who Dares Wins turned up, which is regarded as one of the first reality TV shows out on the street, daring people to do just the most bizarre things for 50 bucks up to a trip around the world, eat a sheep's eyeball for 50, you know, all this sort of stuff. So there hadn't been any shows made like that. And I think that those two shows in particular put the – some of the foundation stones in for some of the absolute crap (laughs) that's on in reality TV now, 25 (laughs) years down the track. Would you watch some of the stuff that's on now? It's just bizarre. But our shows weren't like that and uh, and people still – look, we made Who Dares Wins 96, 97, 98. I still get blokes come up to me going, you're going to dare me? 
or where's Tanya? <laughs> and I go, Tanya's good, man. Tanya and I talk. She's had twins. So between us, I've got triplets and Tanya's got twins. Must have been something in the water at Who Dares. But we talk a couple of times a year. She lives down on the Mornington Peninsula with a partner and her twins. Happy as Larry, still super fit, looks amazing still and going real good. But, yeah, that's they want to know more about Tanya than me. Border closures in the future aren't completely off the table and international travel is probably at least a year away. People thinking about having a staycation in Sydney or New South Wales, what's the inside goss? Where should people check out? Oh, where do you want to go? I mean, look, this as my role as the host of this show got bigger, you become very much across the geography and what's where and, and what's going on. And what we don't realise in New South Wales is this. Start up at the Tweed and just start drifting down to Byron. You know, they call it God's country up there. I mean, it's just phenomenal. And into the hinterland, just out the back, you know, Nimbin and the Shannon and all these places. And people talk about Nimbin. They go, oh, you're going to go and get stoned. I mean, don't even go into Nimbin. Around Nimbin is just the most beautiful countryside and Lismore and all these places. Then drop a bit further south and you get into rainforest around Coffs Harbour going down to port. Then go a bit further south. You've got the Great Lakes. Then you've got Central Coast. You've got Port Stephens and Nelson Bay. That's just on the coast. Then you've got the backbone, which is the Great Dividing Range. And if you go right down the south, we've got snow. So you can be up in the north in the tropics or you can be up in the south in the snow. Then you go a bit west of the divide. You've got these amazing farmlands and beautiful areas. Then you get into desert. And when you go to Broken Hill, Tibbaburra, um, Silverton, you're in the desert and it's desert. It's not snow and it's not rainforest. So in this state, we have everything, the lot. So take your pick, get a map and just throw a, a, a dart into the map in New South Wales and somewhere within 50 or 100 k's of where that dart lands is such something really amazing. Amazing. I mean, I, I can't, if you said to me, what's your favourite place? That's another one-hour conversation because there's so many, it, what do you want to do? <laughs> and then go right down the south coast to the border. How beautiful is it down the south coast? Absolutely outstanding. Now, I'm a little bit biased. My sister's lived in Berry for 35 years, so I've actually spent a bit more time going down the south coast. Oh, yeah. And there's not as many people down there. It doesn't seem to be as busy, just beautiful. It reminds me of England in some of the places where I go down there. And So we have everything. And Sydney's such a vibrant place, not at the moment, unfortunately, but there's – cultural sides, there's the arty side of it, there's the food side of it. Man, we get the best food in the world, in this country, in this state, in our city. The best food, the quality, the organics, everything, the best. We've got the best of the best of the best in this country. I don't know whether people actually realise it. I mean, I knew that all along, but doing Sydney Weekender for a quarter of a century has made me understand we have the best of the best of the best in this country. Mike, this has been great sitting down chatting with you. There are three tough questions, though, we ask everyone before they leave. Could you voice? You've got to tell us what's the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where can you get the best coffee, and where sells the best hamburgers and why? Uh, best beach, very biased, but I'm a, an old Maroubra boy. If you learn to surf at Maroubra, because Maroubra means like place of thunder or noise like thunder. And, and I think that's the locals, well, the waves are big there. I mean, I was down there today, mate. It's The swell's picked up like four metres. If you learn to surf at Maroubra, you could pretty much go anywhere else. And if they said where you're from and you went, oh, I'm from Maroubra, they'd either think, well, he's going to be a really good fighter <laughs> or he can surf a little bit. And I still go down the beach a number of times every week. I can't go surfing now, my knees are too bad. But to stand there at the north end of Maroubra Beach is a very, very special place for me and the energy in the water and the amount of time I've spent at that beach. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Coogee, Bondi, spent a lot of time surfing at Bondi, Bronte, Tutama. 
But Maroubra is my home. Maroubra is dead set my home. Coffee. Corner of Moverley Road and Malabar Road is the Bakehouse South Coogee. There's a few good coffee places around, but that's my favourite spot. And they've got these little pear and ricotta tarts, which Al, the guy who owns it, said, on the day I bought the first one, you shouldn't have bought that. I went, why not? He said, you will not be out. So now I've got to have a coffee and a pair of ricotta. That's my little naughty bit for the day. Uh, Burgers, Inferno Grill at Maroubra Junction. I started to go to Inferno when they first opened and then a few years ago they came up with the burger thing at Inferno and it actually turned their business around. So I have the pig kahuna on a Tuesday night, every Tuesday night with my son when I go there and then we go and hit golf balls at Moore Park at the driving range every Tuesday night. What are you laughing at? (laughs) (laughs) Mike. Thank you so much. Now, if people would like to learn more about the Randy Peets, in particular in the 20th year, where should they head to? Yeah, we've got our website, ranwickpetishamcricket.com.au. I think the president should know that. But if you just put in ranwickpetishamcricket, the website will come up. Look, we've got a lot of things planned. But like you said, we're not sure what we can do. You know, just organising our AGM this year on Zoom and all that sort of stuff has been so weird because usually we have 100 people in a room. But we've had to do that. But, yeah, everything will be on the website and we're hoping to have every year we have my president's lunch. What we're going to do this year is combine the president's lunch and the 20th anniversary dinner together. That's hoping to be on sometime probably February or March near the end of the season. So exciting year coming, Marge. And, look, thanks for having me in. Don't mind a talk, do I? I'm a good on the yap. No wonder I've been at Channel 7 for 27 years. Strike me lucky. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a pleasure having you, Mike. Thanks, Marge. My pleasure. Thank you. Doesn't he have the gift of the gab? Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Ramwick Petersham Club, head to ramwickpetersham.com.au. Thanks for listening to Coogee Voice. We're going to do it again. But I like that. Just another sentence. Wow. Weren't there some, wasn't there some great stories there? Doesn't he have the gift of yeah. the gab? What doesn't wits? Yeah. Wow. Weren't there some really... Ah. That's all right. Wow, weren't there some great stories there? Doesn't Wits have the gift of the gab? Now, if you'd like to learn more about Randy Peets, head to randwickpetersham.com.au. Thanks for listening to Coogee Voice.